Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jared Bumpers, Assistant Professor of Preaching and Evangelism here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Mitchell Chase to the podcast. Mitchell is the Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He has written several books in the areas of biblical studies, hermeneutics, and discipleship. Dr. Chase also serves as a preaching pastor at Cosmosdale Baptist Church in Kentucky since 2012. Dr. Chase, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Well, Dr. Bumpers, it's great to be with you. I enjoy listening to Preaching and Preachers podcast, so it's an honor to be on. Yeah, we're excited to have you on, and today we're going to talk about uh, typology and preaching. Uh, you wrote a book several years ago, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory, and so want to recommend that resource to our listeners, and then want to have a, an opportunity just to ask you some questions about typology and preaching. Great. Let's do it. All right. So first question up for our listeners who, who may be wondering, okay, what exactly is typology? When you talk about typology, what are you talking about? So I'd love for you to, to give a definition for our listeners and just explain what we mean when we talk about typology. That really is the perfect place to start. Um, the term typology, inside that is the word type, and the word type is meant to convey something like an impression uh, that would form a kind of pattern or mold uh, to be filled. That's what you would do if you had the cookie cutters or some kind of uh, structure that you were planning to frame around and then fill. The type that we have in mind is some kind of Old Testament thing or character or event or institution that will be filled up by God's redemptive plan in Christ. So one way to think about typology is that there are earlier things, people, events that are embedded in the Old Testament that are going to have correspondences to something later down the line in redemptive history. And it's going to connect to the person and work of Christ and his church. We think of things like Christological types. We're meaning by that that something much earlier in the Old Testament was used by the Lord by his own ordination and providence to have a historical foreshadowing role. And so typology is interested in exploring those earlier and later connections. There is one element to this that's also key. I'm not just looking at parallels or correspondences only. Hmm. There is some sort of escalation between something earlier and Christ himself or the work of Christ. So we're noticing how earlier events will escalate toward a time of fulfillment, those patterns that are filled up, uh, those frames that are colored in by the work of Christ. So that's what we have in mind when we think of typology. Now, let, let me ask this question. You address this in your book, but love for our listeners to hear it from you. Does a type have to be explicitly identified in the New Testament for an interpreter considered a type? Now, this is a controversial question because not everybody is going to agree on how to answer that. We have to ask that question because it's obvious that the New Testament does identify types. We see them identifying types like David or Solomon, types like the priests or someone like Moses. Um, however, 
the Old Testament characters and events that seem to suggest something redemptive or forward-looking aren't always identified in the New Testament, and that puts the interpreter in an interesting situation. Do we have the license, the, the, the freedom interpretively to say, I think this is a type in the Old Testament, even if the New Testament has not identified it? I'm persuaded that we do have that liberty that interpretively we can study what the New Testament authors are doing when they read the Old Testament. And then we can look at that hermeneutical grid or the moves that they make and imitate that. I remember in 2005, the first time I heard that we should imitate the hermeneutic of the apostles, Jim Hamilton in a course on the book of Isaiah. Of course, Dr. Hamilton teaches at Southern Seminary where I'm at. And uh, he's been such a mentor of mine for interpreting the Old Testament over the years, I remember being so struck by hearing that we should imitate the apostles in the way they read the Old Testament. It, it seemed like, how can we do that? We're not inspired. Okay. And I understand that reluctance. Now, I think what Dr. Hamilton so persuasively argued then and still argues today, and that I have been completely persuaded by, is that we are going to interpret the Old Testament according to somebody's grid. We're right. going to employ someone's strategy. And if the New Testament authors have an inspired use of the Old Testament, they can make conclusions that are authoritative and trustworthy. Then we would be better served to study how they're reading the Old Testament and then try to imitate that. So I'm making a larger hermeneutical point here, right? And that mm -hmm. means when it comes to typology, I think that we can see how they're reading about David and Moses and we could look at passages that deal with Joshua or Isaac or Joseph, and we can identify them as types because it's the kind of thing that the New Testament authors are giving us a pattern or strategy to do. So I think the answer to your question must be yes, but I know not everybody is persuaded of that. Well, you're in good company here. Like you, I remember the first time I heard that being struck by that thought and almost the same reaction. The biblical writers are inspired, and so... Of course, their understanding of Scripture is perfect, but then you, you get to the question, okay, well, if I'm going to interpret the Bible and I'm going to use principles, where am I deriving those principles from? And so I'm, mm. either, I'm either employing the principles laid out in the New Testament by the apostles, or I'm pulling those principles from somewhere else. And so, yeah, I think it's helpful for us to, to understand that not only do we have inspired writers, but we, we have inspired writers giving us a proper method to interpret Scripture. So. Yeah, I, I, I love exactly the way you right. said that. Well, I think you kind of opened this up a little bit, so I'm, I'm going to go this direction. You talk about assumptions connected to interpreting the Bible and understanding types. And so in addition to what we've just talked about, what are some other theological assumptions or, or thoughts that guide how you interpret the Bible and in particular how you recognize and identify types? The nature of your question gets us to really the question about the nature of the text itself. What sort of book are we dealing with in drawing typological conclusions? How are we grounding that? And I think there's a real metaphysic here that we have to acknowledge that the Bible's not like any other book. Right. And if I'm going to interpret something typologically, one of the assumptions and principles I'm operating from is that this is a story, this epic story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. This is a heaven given book. There are more than 40 human authors. There are multiple languages and the Bible was written on multiple continents over many centuries. We affirm all of that. 
We just affirm more than that Mm. as Christians. We say that these writings are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So there is a divine author that establishes a cohesive narrative. Now, this starting out principle is so crucial. If that's not granted by an interpreter, the whole enterprise of typology must seem completely absurd. Because how could they grant it? I'm looking at something earlier in the Old Testament. I'm trying to relate something in the New Testament Gospels with it. If this is not a united text, a coherent and heaven-given, spirit-inspired set of writings, then typological interpretation is just some kind of clever, interesting move that people are making, but why should anyone trust it? If the Lord of heaven and earth has made himself known in Genesis through Revelation, then we can trace how the unfolding of his story of redemption goes through all of these different centuries and at the hand of all these many authors, and we can notice the continuity and the unity of the Testaments. That's a crucial principle when it comes to typology. It really grounds the whole enterprise. What sort of book are we reading? And if we can't agree on what sort of book the Bible is, then starting to talk about typological interpretation with different folks uh, isn't really getting deeper to the main question. Once we can recognize this is a book that God has inspired, then we can think to ourselves, okay, across all these many different human authors, God has ensured the accuracy of what he's made known. He's preserved it all through history by his Holy Spirit. And and we can now study these documents to notice and trace the organic development of revelation. And part of that revelation is going to be the Christological hope that begins early in the Bible. And then as advanced across many patterns and types and shadows unto the day of fulfillment at the coming of Christ, at his advent and his ministry and his death and resurrection. That big assumption about the nature of the Bible grounds this whole thing. So I think it's really key to have in place and readers really need to think through what sort of book are we interpreting? And if someone is skeptical about typological interpretation and they think, I'm not really sure why anybody would want to do this. I think it would be fair to push back and say, what sort of what sort of book is this then in the Old and New Testaments? Are these the mere words of man? Or is God doing something across history to accomplish his redemptive will? And I think it must be the latter if we're reading it as Christians. Yeah, the nature of Scripture shapes the way that we interpret the Bible. That's, that's crucial. And, you know, inspiration, progressive revelation, uh, all those truths are central to how we understand Scripture. Even listening to you talk about inspiration and the unity of Scripture and and one unified story and God being the divine author. So you have multiple human authors, but one capital A author who oversees the Scriptures being breathed out. If that is true, and we, we believe that it is true, then those things that you mentioned earlier when we talk about types, historical correspondence, escalation, fulfillment in Christ, those are not accidental. Those are intentional or designed by God in Scripture for us to see, understand, embrace, love, preach, teach, and so on. That's right. And this language that you're using right there at the end is connected to the providence that we believe God acts uh, with so that no accidents are occurring in these Old Testament historical stories. There's a real purpose in the unfolding of these narratives in the Torah and then in the books from Joshua forward as the story of Israel unfolds. All of these characters 
in all of these events, they're all interconnected that in the plan of God, a redemptive hope for the seed of the woman is advancing. Providence is so crucial to ground uh, typological interpretation as well. We believe that the sovereignty of God has superintended all of human history. And that means the history that the Bible gives a recounting of is history that unfolded under God's good and wise hand, and it's going to advance the plan that he is seeking to establish that leads to Christ, his son. So the providence of God works with this in a way that we can say, these types and shadows are not accidents, far from it. These are purposeful things that we read, given by God for us to study and to notice his faithfulness and attentiveness to his image bearers. Amen and amen. I love it. Let me uh, move towards preaching here. We have a lot of guys who are aspiring preachers. They're currently in pastoral ministry. Some are new to pastoral ministry. Some have been preaching for a while. But how might a better understanding of types and an increased ability to recognize types in Scripture shape how they preach the Bible? This, this question makes me think of the book of Acts. When Paul goes into the synagogue, what does he preach to the synagogue on the Sabbath day? It tells us in Acts that he proclaimed Christ from the scriptures. Hmm. Which scriptures were these? Well, we can understand reasonably that these are the Old Testament scriptures. He's proclaiming Christ from the Old Testament to those who need to believe in him and those who are being built up in Christ during his ministry. The Old Testament, he is proclaiming as Christian revelation and instruction. I think part of the reason we need typology is because typological interpretation is one of the ways that unites the Old Testament with the new. It has been said by more than one scholar that the New Testament's primary use of the old is typological. Well, that's huge. If we're going to have the whole counsel of God to proclaim and to study how the New Testament relates to the old, consider the huge claim that some people have made that primary use of the Old Testament in the New is a typological one. Uh, That means preachers have to take this seriously. But I think there's even a transformative element to focus on. If we remind ourselves what we're trying to do in the task of preaching, we are holding forth the goodness of Christ and the gospel from the different texts we are proclaiming him from one week after another. We are longing for people to know Christ, to believe in him, to be changed. And this means when we proclaim different patterns and types from the Old Testament that hold forth Christ, we are helping people behold the Lord. And the Lord is pleased by the preaching of his word to warm the hearts of his people as they see the many interconnections and rejoice in the very specific details by his providence that he's ordered in a Christological shape. It's a beautiful thing. It can be stunning to hear and see as Bible readers and listeners. I think as preachers, we will do our congregants a great service by proclaiming Christ and all the various types that uphold him, because we are proclaiming Christ that he might be beheld by them so that they can be changed by him. There's a transformative aspect to this. And I don't don't think I'm trying to oversell the importance of typological interpretation. We are tasked with the glorious privilege of proclaiming the risen Christ. And when we can show from the Old Testament how the way is prepared, I think that sends the hearts of the people of God soaring. They're able to notice more of Christ. And I also think there's an apologetic value for our people when we can demonstrate through our preaching that the Old Testament 
holds forth the Messiah by God's own inspiring spirit, then we are showing the truthfulness of the word of God and the unity of scriptures. And how crucial is that in a day and age where people know very little about the Bible and have very low biblical literacy rates and may be very suspicious of the idea of the Bible having trustworthiness or authority. Typological preaching can have an interesting angle on this subject where we are demonstrating something that no single human author tried to be clever enough to engineer, but something that across all these centuries and texts really demonstrates the veracity of Scripture. I think typological preaching can conserve our congregants in these ways, probably many more, but those are a few that preachers should think about. Yeah, those are all excellent. And as you mentioned, typology is so often used by the New Testament authors in dealing with the Old Testament. My mind, as you were talking, went to, okay, if we're preaching the Old Testament, we should have a clear understanding of typology so that we can move from Old Testament types, events, institutions, people, to Christ and proclaim Christ from the Old Testament. Sidney Gradanus, in, in his book, Preaching Christ in the Old Testament, lists seven ways to preach Christ in the Old Testament. And one of the most prominent that he uses is typology. And so yes. moving from the Old Testament to Christ, we have a, a legitimate method to preach Jesus from the Old Testament. And then even in the New Testament, when you have the fulfillment of those types that are drawn from the Old Testament, you can point back to the Old Testament. And I think that's oftentimes where the apologetic value comes in, where you can say, hey, this thing that's happening in this particular text of the New Testament corresponds to something that happened a thousand, two thousand years ago and was intended by God to point forward to this moment in history when Christ would fulfill whatever thing is being fulfilled. Amen. I love it. I think for all those reasons, if you're listening, you're preaching, take time to to study typology, to recognize types and to incorporate typology, put it in your tool belt as a preacher in order to faithfully preach Christ from all of Scripture. One other question that I think connects to this as well is what are some dangers or pitfalls to avoid when it comes to typology? So we want to encourage our listeners to embrace typology, to to use typology to preach Christ in the Old Testament. But what are some things that they need to know, at least to be aware of, to make sure that, uh, that they don't overstep their bounds, so to speak? Well, at least a couple cautions come to mind. We're not trying to just choose a name in the Old Testament and say, here's how this points to Christ. We're trying to look at contextual considerations, issues of covenant. Uh, We're trying to notice where in redemptive history things are happening, what in the larger sweep of the text and narrative may be unfolding. We're not just trying to select a name from a genealogy and say, here's a type of Christ. Hmm. That, That would not be what we're trying to do. We need to be people who recognize that an exegetical or a textual case is good and necessary. I think with typological preaching, we need to be able to show our work. We're trying to model faithful reading and faithful interpretation. If we're preaching with Christological types, we're trying to teach people to do something that initially they might not have an instinct for Mm. or may have had very little exposure to. It's like learning a new skill in math. If someone just says, you know, here's the question and here's the answer, and they don't show you how they did the work, that might not be very helpful to you. You might be more confused than ever, in fact. I think in this hermeneutical discussion with typological interpretation, we need to recognize the importance of making a case. And I don't mean we're trying to give some technical lecture for half of the sermon where we're trying to demonstrate something. That's not what I mean at all. I just mean we are willing to say to people, here are the correspondences I've noticed. 
rather than just saying Isaac and the story of Genesis 22 is a type of Christ. Hmm. Well, let me think about the Isaac story for a minute. You know, let me think about Genesis 22, what's going on in Abraham's life. Let me give some historical attention to the initial context. And then let me help the reader see what Isaac is doing and the picture of sacrifice and the deliverance from death that then has some forward pointing correspondences that take us to the Messiah. And I think that fruitful homework showing uh, to the listeners Hmm. will really pay off. I think it helps persuasively. I think it also helps build confidence that over time, your listeners and readers might be able to also take on those same kinds of methods and have more confidence in their interpretation of biblical types. Now, uh, so that's, that's one particular caution. And I think the other caution would be, it's related to something we talked about earlier. It would be to assume I should only look for things that are identified in the New Testament. Mm. I would want to encourage preachers to realize the New Testament authors have never told us they've identified all the types. That Mm. itself would be an assumption. Mm. Instead, I think we should recognize that this Old Testament section, 39 books, is a huge amount of scripture for us to mine, for us to open the treasure and rejoice over what God has revealed. And there is more to see now in light of Christ. It's like one of B.B. Warfield's famous illustrations of the Old Testament, like a dimly lit room with all the furniture in place before the coming of Christ. And then once Christ comes, all the lights are on, the furniture is there that's been there all along, and now you can see everything. You can see so much better. It's all in crystal clarity. What we need to realize as as preachers then is we're trying to model the unity of the Testaments by going into the Old Testament with all the Christological lights on, so to speak. And now we can see what God has made known, and we can take those confident uh, approaches to identifying things that the New Testament has given us a sound hermeneutic to imitate and to follow. Yeah. Is there anybody in in church history that you think models this well? Is there someone that that you would say was particularly gifted at identifying types in Scripture? You know, the the names are many, in fact, because typological reading was so common in church history. This is true in the early fathers, whether it is someone like Irenaeus or someone like Augustine. You can even see this all the way to the Reformers. You see Martin Luther and John Calvin identifying types and identifying types in the Old Testament that had not been identified in the New. And so they were adopting that same instinct and hermeneutic of noticing what God has made known now that Christ has come. Those particular uh, friends that I've mentioned from history that we should call our friends and a cloud of witnesses before us, we should read their writings. We should go and notice how they've talked about the Psalms or how they talk about the Torah. Uh, You should get John Calvin's commentaries on the Pentateuch and just read about how he talks about these various characters and events and anticipates Christ. It's really a beautiful thing. Uh, So those are a few names from church history, very, very early in church history, and then uh, in the Reformation era that I think would really repay readers to see how the common assumptions um, are identical in how how the Bible is being approached as making God's plan known in Christ. Those are, yeah, those are great suggestions, and it gives, gives our listeners somewhere to go and see this is what it actually looks like in practice. So uh, thank you for that. One last question. How has your view of, of typology shaped your approach to preaching? Are there any examples that might be helpful to those who are listening 
as you think about maybe something you've preached recently where typology has played a major role in the sermon itself? Yeah, so I think about something I preached recently from the book of Numbers. On Sunday nights, we've been trying to finish up the book of Numbers. There are some really dramatic chapters in that book, including one in Numbers 25, when Phineas takes a spear and kills a sinning Israelite who had taken an unbelieving idolater into a tent to consummate a relationship. It's quite a dramatic passage. What is interesting, though, is that Phineas here, is the son of the current high priest. Aaron had died. Eliezer is the high priest now. And Eliezer's son, Phineas, is a a guardian of the tabernacle. He has a spear, as other guardians might be imagined to have in the vicinity of the sacred place. And near the tabernacle, this sinful display, this outrageous act of idolatry is taking place in the camp of Israel. Moabite daughters at Balaam's own encouragement have come to seduce Israelite men, and there is flagrant idolatry and immorality. A judgment of God begins to unfold. There is a plague that begins to kill people, and Phineas steps into the fray. Phineas takes a spear, and in an act of righteous indignation and zeal for the glory of God, the sinning couple dies, and the wrath of God is propitiated. It is it ceases. And Phineas is given some covenantal language by the Lord to uphold not only the importance of what he had just done, but the descendants who would come from him in the priesthood. Oh man, it is a rich passage. It is a rich passage. And what is fascinating is that the sacredness and zeal for the holy place is taken up most truly by Christ himself in John 2, zeal for your house will consume me, the disciples remembered from the scriptures when Jesus overturned tables and drove out money changers. And then we see Christ himself stepping into the fray when judgment is what sinners have deserved, and he is the propitiation for the wrath of God. And rather than being the one who inflicts the spear, the way Gordon Wyndham in his numbers commentary put it is, Christ is the one who receives the spear on the cross. There is this beautiful picture of Christ himself being a true and greater Phineas, not by applying the act of judgment, but by actually being the means of God's reconciling mercy. And it's a beautiful picture. I think we can preach Numbers 25, notice what's going on in the Israelite camp, and also hold forth the hope that Christ himself has in the gospel. That's the kind of thing we would want to do, I think. Noticing what we can, making some correspondences, and showing how something even better is found in Christ. Praise the Lord. That's a great example. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, our time has come to an end. Dr. Chase, thank you so much for joining me on Preaching and Preachers. Thank you so much, Dr. Bumpers. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.